I'm going to read uh, Exodus chapter 11. Again, these texts are kind of long, but I want you to see the Scripture. And I've grappled all week with the Scripture to try and distill it down to a single message. But I want you to read God's inspired Word with me or follow along as I read. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now manna was like a coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. Its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you've laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant? To the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once, if I found favor in your sight, and don't let me see my wretchedness. The Lord therefore said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I'll take of the Spirit who is upon you, and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it all alone. Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat. For we were well off in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot, 
And yet you have said, I'll give them meat so they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered for them so to be sufficient for them? The Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And also he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the tent. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took of the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. But they did not do it again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other was Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now, they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon uh, them. Upon them. And then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. <clears throat> now, there went forth a wind from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea. And let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, all around the camp. And about two cubits deep, about three feet deep on the surface of the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. He who gathered the least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was still between their teeth, Before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. And so the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatavah, that is, the the graves of greediness. Because they buried, there they buried the people who had been greedy. You might think that Godly Christian leaders never get depressed, and probably, theoretically, they never should get depressed, but the fact of the matter is that many strong Christian leaders have struggled with depression. I think one of the most well-known is the famous British preacher C.H. Spurgeon from the 19th century, He suffered from terrible bouts of depression. He did have several severe physical ailments that could have contributed to his uh, depression. But whatever the causes, he was brought extremely low on a number of occasions. Uh, Once he told his congregation that he felt so down that he said he could say with Job, My soul chooseth strangling rather than life. He added, I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. So you can easily see the man was suicidal at that point. 
And Spurgeon wasn't alone. Martin Luther often struggled with uh, deep depression. Uh, several preachers from the past, who, at least those of us who preach know their names, a uh, well-known man named John Henry Jowett, uh, another named Alexander White. He wrote a two-volume thing on Bible characters that's on my shelf. Um, G. Campbell Morgan, who I have his ten volumes of sermons on my shelf. These men all struggled at times with depression in their ministries. Now, I didn't read it, but in Numbers chapter 10, Moses seemed pretty optimistic about the future, but by Numbers 11, he is so depressed that he asked God to take his life. Uh, back in Numbers chapter 10, he asked his brother-in-law, Hobab was his name, to accompany Israel as they journeyed to the promised land. And in Numbers 10:29, he assured him, the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. And so Moses was uh, upbeat as the future looked bright. But then in the text we read, we get to verse 15 of Numbers 11, and he's so down, he prays, so if you're going to deal thus with me, just please kill me at once if I found favor in your sight, and don't let me see my wretchedness. So you have to ask, what happened? You know, how did, how did Moses go from feeling pretty good about the future in chapter 10 to being suicidal uh, in chapter 11. And I think that we can learn three things. That a leader can get depressed. First of all, if he listens to complaining people and let them get to him. Secondly, if he tries to do everything by himself. And thirdly, if he forgets God's promises and God's power to accomplish his purposes. Now before we look at why Moses got depressed, just note that there have been many other godly leaders in the Bible who got depressed as well. Uh, Spurgeon mentioned Job, and we all know the suffering Job went through, and he lamented the day of his birth. He wished that he could die. The author of Psalm 42 and 43 was obviously fighting depression because he felt abandoned by God and oppressed by his enemies. And if you're interested, I've got a sermon on dealing with depression based on, uh, on those psalms that goes into more depth than I'm going to do here today. Uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet he is called. And I can understand why he wept because he never got any positive response to his ministry. Uh, how depressing that would be. You know, year in, year out. You, you labor faithfully for the Lord, and all you get is opposition. Uh, when God spared the people of Nineveh, Jonah, the prophet, uh, was so depressed that he asked God to take his life because he wanted God to judge the people of Nineveh, not revive them and, and save them. So he's the opposite of Jeremiah. He got good results, but he still wanted to die. Uh, you have John the Baptist who gets depressed in prison and he sends an envoy to Jesus kind of saying, are, are, are you the Messiah or did we miss something here? You know, implication, if you're the Messiah, what am I doing in this stinking dungeon? Uh, and Peter, as you know, after he failed the Lord and denied the Lord, went out and wept 
bitterly over his failure. Paul was depressed because of the attacks from some in the Corinthian church against him and wrote 2 Corinthians basically expressing his deep feelings. And even the mighty prophet Elijah, a man who had seen God do amazing miracles, um, very few in the Bible saw God work as Elijah did. He had just seen a great victory over the prophets of Baal and then the godless uh, woman Jezebel, the queen, threatened his life. He fled into the desert and then ironically asked the Lord to take his life. Well, if he really wanted to die, all he had to do was go back and Jezebel would take care of the deed for him. But, you know, depressed people don't always think logically. And uh, Elijah was depressed. Now, Moses' experience here uh, isn't comprehensive, but we can see three reasons leaders get depressed. And this isn't just a message for leaders. I hope it relates to everybody here in one form or another, but obviously Moses is the center of the chapter. And the first lesson I've already alluded to, and that is a leader can get depressed if he lets complaining people get to him. The tabernacle, we skipped this chapter, but back in Exodus chapter 36, uh, the tabernacle had been constructed because they invited God's people to bring gold and silver and materials and everything, and they had a very unique problem. The people brought too much, and they had to say, please, stop giving. Wow, every pastor thinks, what a wonderful situation, you know? Tell your people, we have too much. We don't know how to distribute it. Uh, Please, hold your gifts. But that's what had happened. And the tabernacle was constructed. And we saw last time in Exodus 40 how the, the glory of God came down and rested on that tabernacle. And after that, the cloud went with Israel through the wilderness and was a visible reminder every single day and every night of the presence of God with His people. Now, in the second year, they came out of Egypt on the 20th day of the second month. We read in chapter 10, the cloud lifted. And so, Israel set out following the cloud, now on their way, hopefully, to the promised land. Things were looking good. But then you hit chapter 11 and the grumbling that had characterized God's people right after they came out of, uh, of Egypt. We saw this uh, when we looked at the Exodus. It starts up again in verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. We learn, first of all there, that sometimes people complain, God's people complain, because they don't like God's ways, which invariably include adversity. God's way to the promised land happened to go through this barren wilderness. God's way to heaven invariably goes on a path that is strewn with adversity. 
the Apostle Paul in Acts 14.22 went back and instructed the new converts. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The Lord uses various trials to teach us to trust Him. That song we sang about, thank God for the wilderness, I think said it well. And also he uses trials as we submit to shape us into the image of Jesus. And we read the startling statement in Hebrews 5.8 that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Not that he was disobedient ever, but he learned the experience of what it means to obey God through the things our Savior suffered. You'll notice that in verse 1, the people's complaining was in the hearing of the Lord. I smile when I read that because all complaining is in the hearing of the Lord. The Lord hears everything. In fact, the Lord knows not only our verbal complaints, He knows the attitude of our hearts, doesn't He? Even if we button up our lips and don't say it, God knows our heart. Uh, but that statement is there to emphasize the contrast. God has met their every need. He has provided for them in the wilderness. Uh, and now they are complaining in His hearing. Back in Exodus chapters 14, 15, and 16, the people complained and God graciously did not confront their complaints. He just met their need. Remember when He said to Moses, alright, they're asking for food. I'm going to rain bread from heaven on them. And the manna came. They're thirsty? Strike the rock. And a river gushes forth out of the rock. He doesn't rebuke the people. But now the difference is this. They have had a year of experiencing God's abundant provision. Every morning, manna. Whoa. You know, every day, water right over there at the rock. Go get it. All you want. God has met their need. Hot in the desert, well, the cloud covers them. Cool at night, well, the fire warms them, gives them light. So, He has met their every need. And so now when they complain, we read that the Lord was angry and He sends fire on the outskirts of the camp. We don't know whether it burned any people or not, but at least probably some property, some tents and that kind of thing. And then... Moses prays in verse 2, and the fire died out. The lesson there is this. If you think that God's plan for you is to give you health and material comfort, you're going to complain in the Christian life. You don't read that anywhere in the Bible, even though it is a major movement in the so-called Christian world today. It sweeps over Africa right now. It's into China. Remember the first time we went to China, a young woman who, Chinese woman who smuggled Christian materials into the mainland, I told her about the prosperity gospel, and she shook her head and said, oh, that'll never fly in China because people are persecuted and they're poor. Well, now it has spread in China. It's all over the world that God's will for you is physical health and material wealth. That's a lie. God's will for you is His glory as you are conformed to the image of His Son 
who learned obedience through the things he suffered. And it's through our trials that we often glorify the Lord. And so we have to understand God's purpose is not to make us comfortable or will complain like people who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. Second thing we learn here is that sometimes people complain because they're greedy and they expect the leaders to meet all their needs. Numbers 11 verses 4 through 6. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Implication, Moses, you're a no good leader or you would provide for our needs. We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Sounds like Olive Garden or something, doesn't it? You know? But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at except this, may I add, boring manna. That's their attitude. Oh, man, manna for lunch, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Now, the rabble probably refers to the non-Israelites who joined Israel when they came out of Egypt. They were not the majority. They were the minority. But here's the thing. When a minority begins complaining among the people of God, it spreads like wildfire if you aren't resistant to it. One person says, oh, you know, this guy Moses isn't giving us any, any meat. And someone else says, yeah, I didn't like Moses either. He told me such and such. And pretty soon it's going like all through the camp. Oh, this guy Moses, if he was a good leader, he'd provide for all our needs. And they're all reminiscing about the good life they had back in Egypt. And you're going, hello, <laughs> good life in Egypt? Remember when we started the study of Moses? They're out there making bricks in the hot Egyptian sun. And, and the taskmasters are beating them. And Pharaoh's saying, more bricks, more bricks. Get back to work, you lazy bums. And, you know, they say, well, we got to eat all that food for free. Well, maybe sort of. They ate for free, but they weren't free. They were slaves. And uh, now the greedy rabble stirs them up to complain. One cause of greed and, and complaining is you're comparing yourself with others whom you think have it better than you. Now, they usually don't, but you project that and say, oh, man, if we were just like so-and-so over there, they don't seem to have our problems. You know, and the rabble, all they can do is remind people, hey, you remember those melons? Oh, wow, weren't those juicy? You know, and remember all the spices, the leeks and the onions and the garlic? Oh, man. And they forgot the Egyptians had lost all of their firstborn in the plague. And they're complaining because Moses hasn't given them all this tasty food that they thought they enjoyed in Egypt. And they forgot about Egypt's leader, a cruel dictator who didn't care about their people and as we've seen, Moses cared so much about this people, he was willing to be condemned eternally if they could be rescued and saved. So you got a caring leader in Moses, a cruel leader in Pharaoh, but the rabble is stirring everybody up to, with this false memory saying, hey, remember how good we had it back under good old Pharaoh? He was a good leader. If Moses was like Pharaoh, you know, he'd be giving us garlics and leeks and onions and melons and all this good stuff. 
And so they complained. But at the root of their complaint, the Lord reveals here was an even deeper cause. And that is sometimes people complain because they've rejected the Lord himself. And that's what God tells Moses in verse 20. God knows every heart. He knows the people. And uh, he's protected them. He's provided for them. And their problem, God says, isn't really boredom with manna. Their problem is they've turned their backs on me. The gracious and good Lord who has provided manna and water and protection, the cloud, everything they needed. And he said, we're on our way to this land flowing with milk and honey. Trust me, we'll get there. But the people are grumbling. And they preferred returning to slavery in Egypt. Ron Allen points out that this would be comparable to a Christian who said, I was better off when I was a non-Christian. I didn't have all these problems. You know, I wish God hadn't saved me. I'd rather be back in the world. I had everything I wanted back then, and life was better back then. I mean, what a horrible thing to say. And so these people are completely self-centered. They're not thankful for God's abundant provision. They're not trusting in God's promise to lead them into the promised land, even though it's difficult in the wilderness. And as we'll see in a couple of chapters, their continued complaining meant God finally said, all right, you don't want to go to the promised land, you aren't going to the promised land. And that whole generation died in the wilderness. Final thing to note here under this heading is that when leaders listen to people complain and make impossible demands, it can lead to depression. The people are weeping and they're saying, who will give us meat to eat? Implication, Moses, if you were a good leader, you would do that. And we read in verse 10 that Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families at the door of their tent. The first time that the people complained in our chapter, Moses did the right thing in verse 2. He prayed, and the Lord caused the fire to die out. This time, I think we can infer it got to him. He just had had it. And so he prays, but the interesting thing is, in his prayer, he's complaining about the complainers. (laughs) So his prayer is a complaint to God about complaint. Uh, We read it in verses 11 to 15. Let me read it again. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight? For you've laid the burden that you've laid the burden of all this people on me. Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it's too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal thus with me, please tell me at once if I found favor in your sight and don't let me see my wretchedness. So Moses got depressed because he was listening to these difficult people complaining about problems that honestly Moses could not fix by himself. I mean, where in a barren wilderness, picture 
out south of Phoenix somewhere in the desert, are you going to get enough meat to feed two million people? <laughs> you know, it, it just isn't going to happen. And if you let complaining people get to you when they make impossible demands, you're headed for depression. Now, there are two lessons here, one for leaders and one for God's people. The lesson for leaders is this. If you're in leadership or you're thinking about taking a leadership position, uh, count the cost because you will be complained against. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, you know, you cannot make everyone happy. If you're a people pleaser, you shouldn't be a leader because you can't please everyone. You just can't. If you please this guy, you made this guy upset. You please him, the other guy, you know, it's impossible. And so be careful, because even a great leader like Moses could not handle it when he started listening to all these complaining people. He just went, I give up. The lesson for God's people is this. Before you complain about a problem, examine your heart before the Lord and ask, Are you seeking first your comfort and and your happiness? Or are you seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness? Now, you can't expect leaders to do miracles that only God can do. Now, that isn't to say there can be valid problems. And if you have a constructive criticism and a way that you can be involved in the solution, great, bring it on. Obviously, the church is not perfect and we can improve. Uh, On the other hand, sometimes I hear about a problem and I think, well, uh, yeah, it's a problem, but I don't know what to do about it. You know, we have to live with it. I mean, wilderness camping is not the promised land, is it? And the people of Israel needed to adjust their mindset and say, the promised land is out there. Right now we're here. And as long as we're here, we're going to be eating manna and drinking water from the rock. But we got the cloud. We got the Lord. So let's move on. In other words, they need to face reality. So a leader can get depressed if he lets these complainers get to him. There's a second reason, though, in our text. A leader can get depressed. And that is if he tries to do everything by himself. The Lord here doesn't rebuke Moses in grace. He He doesn't answer Moses' um, request. But instead, he just says, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel. And he promises to take from the spirit that's on Moses and place it on them. Now, the idea is not, I'm going to lessen the spirit's influence in your life, Moses. It's that I'm going to share the spirit Uh, with these 70 men to bear the burden of the people with you. Uh, And when the Spirit rests on these men, we read in verse 25, they prophesied, but they only did it once. So I think the meaning of that is this, that through their prophesying, God was verifying or validating their leadership to help Moses But their main task is not going to be as Moses' task to speak for God to the people, thus says the Lord, but rather, in church terms, more like deacons 
who would help bear the load. They would serve, and they would help Moses with this great, huge mass of people. Now, two men, probably two of the 70, did not go out to Moses in the tent where the others prophesied, but they prophesied in the camp. And a young man hears them, and he goes running to Moses, and Joshua is there, and tells him about these these men prophesying. And Joshua, who is jealous for Moses' leadership, uh, begs Moses to restrain them. And then Moses gives a great answer in verse 29. He says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord was put His Spirit upon them, them all. So, it's very clear. Moses was not after his own glory. He wanted the Lord's work to get done. And if it's through someone else, wonderful. The work's getting done. And the Lord gets the glory. Uh, His Spirit reminds me of that of Jesus in the Gospels. You remember in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40, Uh, The Apostle John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus says, Don't hinder him, for there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. You see the same spirit in the Apostle Paul. Remember when he wrote to the Philippians, Paul's in jail in Rome, and uh, he told them that there were some in Rome who were preaching Christ out of envy and selfish ambition, and they were trying to stir up opposition or, or to cause Paul grief in his imprisonment. And here's Paul's conclusion in Philippians 1.18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in this I uh, rejoice. So Paul's aim was to see the gospel preached. And if that was happening, amen. That's the point. Let Christ be exalted. Devotional writer by the name of F.B. Meyer, 19th century uh, man, wrote, There is no test more searching than this. Am I as eager for God's kingdom to come through others as I am through myself? Well, that is a great lesson. Moses' attitude here also anticipated what the prophet Joel spoke of in Joel 2.28. He said, It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, And your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And that prophecy, as you know, was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the church. And now, in the church age, every believer possesses the Holy Spirit. Every believer is gifted by the Spirit. And the church, and to make it particular, this church, will be as strong as when every member is exercising his or her spiritual gifts in submission to the Lord. It's a body, and every part has to play its role. And so, the lesson for pastors is, again, if you try and do it all by yourself, you're headed for burnout and depression. 
So, first of all, a leader can get depressed if, if he uh, lets complainers get to him. Secondly, if he tries to do everything by himself. And then thirdly, a leader can get depressed if he forgets God's promises and God's power to accomplish his purposes. First, let's look at how a leader gets depressed if he forgets God's promises. In Exodus 33, the Lord responded to the incident of the golden calf by telling Moses, I'm going to give you my angel to go with you the rest of the way, but I'm not going myself because if I go up in your midst, I might destroy you because you're so disobedient as a people. And you remember there that Moses, in effect, says, Lord, if you don't go, we aren't going. (laughs) He's kind of saying, I would rather dwell here in this barren wilderness with the Lord than to go into the land of milk and honey without the Lord. And so the Lord relents and says, all right, I'll go with you. And that promise was fulfilled in the cloud. And they could see that cloud every day with them. Moses could see it now. And the cloud was a visible sign of God's favor, of God saying, I'm with you. And yet in his prayer, Moses says in verse 11, Why have you been so hard on your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you've laid the burden of all this people on me? So he had forgotten God's promise to bring these people into the promised land himself to go with them. Now, I'm going to just talk to you as a pastor and and admit this. It is very discouraging when people leave the church because of complaints, especially when they complain about things you can't do anything about. Sometimes they have the grace to come and talk to you, and you listen, and you say, yeah, that's a problem. Uh, You know, I can't do anything about that that I know of. I'm open to suggestions, and they leave anyway. Sometimes, more often, they just leave, and you're going, hey, where's that family? I don't know. They left. And it's very discouraging. It can be very discouraging. When that happens, I have to rely on the Lord's promise. In Matthew 16, 18, he made a great promise, and it's a reason I'm a pastor. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That promise I just rest on all the time. I can't build the church, Lord. You can. Now, if you're not a leader you're still going to have difficult things that happen. Disappointments, things that, trials that you're going, oh man, I didn't need this. What do you do? You rely on the promises of God. One of my favorite, favorite places in the Bible is Romans 8. And at the end of Romans 8, Paul makes this great crescendo of promises where he says, you know, what shall we say uh, to these things, if God is for us, implication, and he is in Christ, then who shall be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And he goes on, talks about how Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, and so on. So when you're prone to be depressed, you've got to come back and rest on the many, many, many promises 
of God to you as a believer. Therefore, you're good. But then the leader can get depressed if he forgets God's power to accomplish his purposes. You know, maybe Moses forgot that the Lord knew how many people were out in the wilderness. So in verse 21, he reminds him, Hey, Lord, you remember? There's 600,000 men on foot out here, plus women and children. You know, and uh, then he rhetorically in verse 22 asks the Lord, What do you want us to do? Kill all our flocks and herds to feed them? Go fish all the fish out of the sea to feed them? But he's doubting the Lord's power. And so the Lord gives this great answer in verse 23. Is the Lord's power limited? This is the Lord who spoke the universe into existence. Is he lacking in power? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. And then the Lord sends quail in such abundance that the one who gathers the least gathered ten homers. That's, is, authorities vary, the low number would be about 500 gallons worth of quail. The high number, 800 gallons. That's a lot of quail, either way you cut it. And so they, they get all of this meat. And the point is this. The Lord never lacks resources to meet our needs, whatever they may be. But the people get greedy. So they're all gathering all this quail. And the Lord judges them, striking with a plague, and many of them die. One author, John Currid, points out, the people were longing for Egypt, so the Lord gives them a dose of Egypt, namely plagues. He sends a plague and many dies. And the people, when they get the quail, there's no evidence that they said, Lord, thank you so much. You're such a gracious provider. Oh, we give you thanks for this food that you've provided for us and our families. No, they didn't honor God as God or give thanks. And so God gave them over to their lust. That's Romans chapter 1. Galatians chapter 6 reminds us that those who sow to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You know, Moses, when he asked the Lord, where can we get enough meat? To feed this people reminds me of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only miracle, by the way, other than the resurrection of Jesus that's in all four Gospels. And it's there for a reason. In John's Gospel, Jesus asks Philip in John 6, 5, Philip, where are we to get bread so that these may eat? And John adds that he's testing him to see his answer. And like Moses here, Moses starts calculating. Let's see, can we slaughter all our livestock? Can we go gather all the fish in the sea? Well, Philip does the math. And he says, let's see, 200 denarii wouldn't provide for all these people. Well, that was a futile thing because they didn't have 200 denarii. All they had were these five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, go, go see what you have. And they go, well, we got this, but... <laughs> What is this for so many, Lord? You know, they're apologizing for it. And the Lord has them sit down. And as you know, he takes the five loaves and the two fish and he multiplies it and he feeds 20,000 people in the wilderness. They were out in the wilderness, outside of town. The late Chinese evangelist, Watchman Nee, has a wonderful sermon that I read years before I became a pastor. 
And that sermon has impacted me for life. And I go back to it now and then. You can read it online if you want. It's called Expecting the Lord's Blessing. And it's based on the feeding of the 5,000. And he makes this point. He says, Everything in our service for the Lord is dependent on His blessing. And then he makes the statement a little later. The meeting of the need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. And I've gone back to that so many times as I have felt constantly inadequate as a pastor for 41 years, and it hasn't gotten any better. I don't feel more competent now than I did when I began. And, you know, I would have been overwhelmed with depression years ago if I was relying on my ability and my strength and my wisdom and my this and my that. And I just read this week in my quiet time that wonderful passage in Zechariah chapter 4 where the Lord says, it's not by your might and it's not by your power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. And that's the key. So whether you're a leader or not, don't listen to complainers. Uh, People complained about Moses' leadership and about God's plan to take him to the promised land. And here you got the greatest leader who's ever existed. So if you're going to lead, guess what? You're not Moses. I'm not Moses. And people will complain. This goes with the turf. Don't listen to them. I mean, sure, if it's a valid complaint, sit down, hear them out, try to deal with it. But if it's not, if it's something, I can't provide meat for this people. Just don't get depressed by it. And then don't try to do everything by yourself. You're not the end-all, be-all of ministry. Pray God will raise up an army of people to join in the work. And then don't forget God's promises and God's power. And in this whole story, Moses is a type of Christ, but in this case, he falls short. Moses was the mediator between God and the people. We have a mediator who never got depressed, who never failed. We have a perfect high priest, and he invites us to come boldly into his presence to receive grace to help in our time of need. Father, we thank you for these stories that you wrote for our benefit, as Paul says, upon whom the ends of the age have come. And I pray if any of my brothers or sisters are down or depressed, that you would point them to your faithfulness, your provision, your care, your promises that we will share your glory soon when Jesus returns, that you would lift them up, Lord, and help them to hope and trust in you. I pray, Father, that if any are here who don't know the blessing of having Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, you would open their hearts to see their desperate condition, their need for repentance, their need to trust in Jesus to save them from their sin. We will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.